Hello, everybody. Welcome to Crunch Time with Keegan and the Boys. I am Keegan, your host, and I'm joined today by the boy Sam Godsey and Tanner Dislin. Today, we'll name our winner and loser of the week and break down some notable moments from the past week. Let's get into episode 18 on Crunch Time. We'll hop into the winner. Sam, I'll throw it to you. Who is our winner of the week? Yeah, the winner of the week's got to be my brother, uh, Eric. He's celebrating his 26th birthday today on November 15th. Happy birthday, Eric. Enjoy your big 26. And uh, he has a wedding coming up, too. So a, a big, right. you know, big couple of months for Eric. So congratulations. Happy birthday from, from crunch time here. No kidding. That's a big couple of months coming up for Eric. Tanner, we'll throw it to you. Our loser of the week would be. It's clearly got to be the Big 12 SEC transfers, because that seemed to be the big storyline coming into or coming out of this weekend was the the big letdown that that happened. I mean, you have Oklahoma, who many people had, including myself, I kind of fell into the trap as a sneaky team that could possibly make a run at a championship here. And they've looked so far from that offense has been struggling. They have preseason Heisman favorite Spencer Rattler. They have to bench him. They bring in Caleb Williams. That seems to spark a little bit of the offense, but then they come into Baylor, one of their few remaining ranked games to make a statement where the committee already has them ranked eight. So the committee doesn't have much stock in Oklahoma. They needed style points. They needed ranked wins and they couldn't get either. They lose the game. And in doing so flip flop from quarterback to quarterback, nothing worked only score 14 points. It was an absolute disaster for Oklahoma and uh, it's really going to be tough to see them turning things around to, to make a run at the playoff in, in, in a championship the way they're playing. And then, of course, that brings us to the other transfer, and that's Texas. The, the memes are too good about Texas football being <laughs> back and always losing games. But at least the one thing was they were good teams. Yeah, they would blow leads, but they were two good teams. And this was the nail in the coffin where they lose to, they lose to Kansas, who hasn't won an, a, a conference game in, in forever and they, they they give up 57, including a, a game-winning two-point conversion to a fullback from Plainville, Kansas, mm-hmm. who then hits him with the horns down. It was just an absolute disaster. And for two storied franchises that are really struggling this year and, and going into the, the toughest conference in football, it is going to yeah. be a rough transition. No kidding. Not only all of that about Texas that you said there, Kansas – had never won at Texas. All of the times that Kansas had beaten Texas in football, it was at it was in Kansas. They had never won in Texas. And here we are. Texas is about to leave for the SEC, but they go out with a loss to Kansas. Yeah. It's like I said, the, the irony is too sweet. Yeah, and uh, I saw something on Twitter earlier today that they had a five-star defensive player, and he was seen laughing as they were losing to Kansas. So not only (laughs) does it affect the demeanor of this team, it also affects the demeanor of recruits potentially coming in. I I mentioned the fullback. I mean, isn't it too great? that someone like Texas, who has all the talent in the world but can never seem to go out and win football games, they get the final blow is from a walk-on fullback from middle of nowhere Kansas who's able to come in and nail that two-point conversion. So like everything's just too sweet with Texas. 
And, and that move to the SEC is going to be rough. One final nail in the coffin for Texas. This marked their fifth loss in a row, which is the first time they've lost five games in a row since 1956. You have to go back to before our parents were born. That's how far you have to go back for the last time Texas has done this. 1956. This is historic lows for this Texas program. Is there anything we want to say about Oklahoma? They're eliminated from college football playoff contention. And sure, you can say they're not really eliminated. In my book, they're done. And I almost feel as if the Big 12 is done too. Because for Oklahoma State, a team that was ranked 10th to hop up there into the top four, I feel like they needed a big win against an undefeated Oklahoma to do that. Uh, Baylor, they've gotten that win against Oklahoma, but they were sitting 13th. I don't see them hopping up very much, like much higher than where Oklahoma was at eight in the college football playoff rankings. What do you guys think in terms of the Big 12 making the making the college football playoff this year because of this loss with Oklahoma happening sooner than we thought it would? Yeah, I think you nailed it. I think with the loss of uh, Oklahoma, I think they're done. It seems Oklahoma could never figure out that quarterback situation and it ended up costing them. I mean, we saw Spencer Rattler start off this season struggling. We thought Caleb Williams was the answer. He gets taken out. So something needs to be uh, figured out there with the quarterback situation. And I think that's what eventually cost him a spot in college football playoffs yeah it's going to be a difficult road i'm not going to say they're done i know keys you said they're done in your book well your book is not the committee's book they are two completely (laughs) different books but and and you mentioned leapfrogging teams above them but there are a lot of teams are in the same conference and right now the only conference that i see getting to is the sec so there's still a lot of a cannibal cannibalization to go but with that being said the 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 non-same conference teams they have to leapfrog oregon they have to leapfrog notre dame and they have to leapfrog cincinnati which I don't think will happen. So I don't think they'll make the playoffs, but I'm not ready to completely say they're out. I don't think they're making it, however. And, and which, mean, would, which of course would, would mean the big 12, not just yeah. Oklahoma. Baylor currently has two losses. The college football playoff committee, of course, has never put in a two loss team in Oklahoma and Oklahoma state. They both have one loss and they played the last week of the regular season. So if Oklahoma takes down Oklahoma state, Oklahoma is the only would only be the only one loss team remaining in that conference. And yeah, it, it, it's a steep uphill climb for the big 12 now trying to get someone into that college football playoff. It's not looking very good. Right. And in the, the inch I mentioned the, the cannibalization that, that needs to occur. One, one I'm interested in is, is that that Georgia Alabama game, right? Yeah. Because you, you think Georgia's favored and if yeah, Alabama were, were to lose that, that would, of course, be their second loss. And if the committee were to put in a two-loss team, you absolutely know it's going to be an Alabama team. Yeah, yeah, true. The rest of the episode, we're going to break down the rest of the games of the week. And it's going to look a little differently than we have in the past. At the very beginning of this podcast, we introduced cap or fact. We'd give a statement. It'd be, it could potentially be a little bit of a hot take. And we'll say cap, it's totally false or fact. Absolutely bona fide truth. We're going to do that with the most notable events from the past week. To start off, we're going to talk about Iowa and Minnesota. Capper fact, boys, Iowa needs to fire Brian Ference right now. I'm going to say fact on this one, and here's why. Late in the fourth quarter, 
under two minutes. Iowa forces a four and out on their own goal line. They get the ball on the two-yard line. Brian Ferentz, offensive genius here, <laughs> decides to kneel the ball. And then we go three and out and end up making a field goal. I don't understand why you wouldn't just do your classic fullback dive, quarterback sneak. I don't care. Scored the ball, put the nail in the coffin, bing, blow, game over. No, no heart attack waiting. So that one made me think, Brian Ferentz, we've talked about it in previous episodes, but that one, I was like, what, what are we doing here? Just put the nail in the coffin. Let's wrap this game up and let's get it to win. But Luckily, we did get a win. Iowa was able to get the win at the end of the day, but I don't think it was a kneel down. Iowa got the ball on the Minnesota three, and they ran two QB sneaks on first and goal from the three and second and goal from the three. And then they finally handed it off to Tyler Goodson, and he lost four yards. So after getting the ball on Minnesota's three-yard line, Iowa proceeded to lose four yards in three plays and had to settle for a field goal. And Iowa also got a delay of game while we were at it. I'm going with fact here. It's inexplicable to me, not only that position where you should have been aggressive, but this is just the latest of several blunders of Brian Ferris being the offensive coordinator here at Iowa. Something needs to change, and I hate to be calling for someone's job like this, but Iowa could potentially be staring down a 9-1, and a 10-0 season if it hadn't been for Brian Ferris and his ineptitude. Yeah, I mean, I, I get, but I, I'm going to go cap gear. And, and here's why. This year is so particularly notable in, in, in the offensive ineptitude because this is the one year in forever the Iowa offensive line has been horrible. Not fine, not okay. They've been really bad. And that is a big problem. And I think we were having, we were having a completely different conversation. Because I agree, I think there are individual instances where Brian Ferentz has been really bad. Calling two plays in a row, like the double QB sneaks, as you said. The stretch in Wisconsin where they ran back-to-back fullback dives on third and fourth down and short. When the gaps are all covered and there are, I think Wisconsin had 11 or, or all 12, or sorry, 10 or all 11 people inside the box. I do, I am frustrated by that. And Brian Ferentz is not blameless. I think the pressure from up top and the pressure from Kirk Ferentz of the conservative play style is a different problem outside that of Brian Ferentz. And I, do, I think if you bring in someone else, I'm not sure how much better the offense gets. And that's why I think, I think that the reason why everyone's calling for his head this specific year is a problem with the offensive line, not a problem with Brian. And I don't know how, how, much more, how much more efficient this offense gets without Brian because they're still going to have these crazy conservative play calls, and it's just the offensive line is the one that is not, not holding their end of the bargain. With all that being said, Brian Ferentz is not blameless, but I think there are other factors at play here as to why this specific year is why everyone's coming for Brian Ferentz's head and why this really wasn't the case a few years ago. So I totally get what you're saying. The offensive line, this is the worst offensive line potentially that we've had under Kirk Ferentz, period. And it's been a long time since I was had this bad of an offensive line. But a conversation piece that's kept coming up week after week is the inability to adjust to the cards you're playing with. From the start of the season up until now, we're, we're 10, 11 weeks into the season. We very much know what are the cards that Brian Ferentz are playing with. 
We have subpar quarterback play with uh, Spencer Petrus. We switched to Padilla. He is a bit more mobile. He's a bit more of an accurate passer. We can roll him out. We can do more stuff with Padilla than we're able to do with Petrus. Okay, I like that. I like Padilla. I like what he brings to the playbook. Uh, Tyler Goodson, it's a good back, but a lot of times he is losing yards when we're running him directly right up the gut because about 50% of the time when we're running Tyler Goodson right up the gut, the offensive line is getting broken down in half a second. So the gap was there and it's gone before Tyler Goodson can even touch the ball. So we, we need to get him out in space. This is something that we know. And we have some playmakers out wide and Keegan Johnson and uh, Tyrone Tracy. There are some good playmakers that we have on the outside. If we can just work plays in such a way to get them the ball, but Brian Ferentz, being the offensive mastermind that he is, the way he is able to generate playbooks that get his playmakers out into the open where they can succeed. Oh, wait, he doesn't do that. He has struggled all season to put Iowa in the best position to win. And when he had such an amazing opportunity to do so, at the three-yard line of Minnesota, we lose four yards and get a delay of game. Brian Ferentz is most certainly not the sole owner of why Iowa's offense has been struggling so much this year. He's not the only one to blame, but my God, if he isn't number one, I don't know if we're watching the same game. If he is not number one as to why Iowa hasn't been successful. I tell you, it's just a fundamental disagreement on how much freedom Brian Ferentz has, in my opinion. I think Kirk Ferentz is over his son's ass saying, we're going to run this damn football. I think okay. that's exactly what's happening here. And you're talking about opening up with a playbook for Padilla, and they didn't, didn't do that for, for Petrus. Brian Ferentz is not making personnel decisions. I think Brian, Ferentz, Brian Ferentz is going up to his dad. The longest most ten, longest tenured yeah. uh, Division I football there is right now and saying, we need to start Alex Padilla. Absolutely goddamn not. That is Kirk Ferentz's decision all the way. And, and I agree. He is not a good offensive coordinator. But his – the, the plays that he has called and have worked in the past are not working this year because of the offensive line. Does he need to, does he need to adjust? Absolutely. His ability to adjust is horrible right now. I do not think that warrants firing at this moment because of, because of the, the poor play of players on the field and more specifically the offensive line and just how that exactly how much would that change with a new offensive coordinator? I don't think it would. So do oh, you yeah. think Kirk Ferentz should get canned? Because you say it's a top head that's making oh. – that's not changing the system. Do you think it's time for Kirk to be like, oh. Now, th- this is an interesting conversation because we're having, yeah. we're having all of this, but Iowa is 8-2. And, yeah. and they're coming <laughs> off of <laughs> – Thank God Where? for Phil Parker. Let's be no, Whenever Phil Parker comes on the screen, I was like – Thank God we have this man. That, that <laughs> is that is of no debate. Do, do not get me wrong. Phil Parker has been a godsend to this program. Kirk Ferentz's play style, we, we talk about how much that annoys us. But like I said, it, it's coming up with results. Yeah. And it's using not the most talented personnel. And, and I don't, I really don't think an Ohio, an Ohio state type of play style would work here at all because we just, mm-hmm. Iowa just doesn't draw the talent and it is so difficult getting talent to the state of Iowa. And I think while it is frustrating to watch that play style is needed to have any sort of success with, with the team in Iowa. I wasn't even thinking about the whole, uh, the Kirk Ferentz situation because 
we don't know what exactly that dynamic is between Kirk and Brian, uh, how, how tight of a leash Kirk has on Brian. Does Iowa need to let go of Brian at some point, like in the off season? Is there a good time to let go of Brian or is he just, should he not be let go at all in your book? I'm not going to go that far right now because yeah. I think, I think right now is just a, a, a quick trigger for an all around, honestly. I mean, I, I was never a high powered offense at all, but all around collectively, this is one of the lowest talent offenses I think Iowa has had, especially from a wide receiving core. You're, you're most athletic and kind of person you really want to get the ball to as a true freshman. You don't have an experienced Amir Smith-Marset. You don't have a, a, an experienced Brandon Smith who, who can just catch one-on-one jump balls all day long. So from that standpoint, I think it is a little quick. However, I am very much frustrated with Brian, and, and I do agree. His, his ability to adapt and calling the same place twice in a row is inexcusable. At this point, I wouldn't say fireable, but if it continues for year after year, then we're, we're starting to get to the fireable rate. Brian Ferentz's seat may definitely be getting a little toasty right now. The, the hot seat's starting to warm up. But I think it's important to end the conversation with perspective. I was 8-2. They're going to be ranked in the top 20 when uh, Tuesday's college football playoff committee rankings come out from this week. And the Nebraskas, the Texases, you know, those teams of the world would love to be eight and two right now and would love to be in the top 20. So perspectives definitely needed. A different college football team, Capper Fact, CJ Shroud is winning the Heisman this year. Oh boy. You know, he has looked so good. He has looked so, so good. But I am going to roll with Cap here just because of the other names. To put this as fact, while you have Bryce Young doing what he's doing over at Alabama, and, and Matt Corral putting up crazy numbers in, in over at Ole Miss. And if that team had a better defense, they'd be kind of in the, in the top 10 conversation as we speak. That performance against Purdue was a, a clinic in how to play quarterback, how to be explosive. It, it, was, it was a treat to watch. But let's also not forget the Tulsa game. A, a Tulsa team, I mean, granted, this was at the beginning of the year, and he is a true freshman, but playing a Tulsa team that was 0-3 at the time, only throwing for 185 yards of offense. He didn't look all that – he didn't look good in that game, right? And that was a close game for a while before before Ohio State kind of pulled away at the end. Overall, I think this is Cat, but, boy, he has all the talent in the world. And for the next few years, C.J. Stroud is going to be at the top of the Heisman conversation. Yeah, I'm also going Cap here for another uh, individual Tanner did not mention, and that's Kenneth Walker III. He has been (laughs) Uh purely dominating the rushing attack for the Spartans. Put some numbers to it. 227 attempts, nearly 1,500 yards, averaging 6.5 yards per carry and 17 touchdowns. Just pure domination, but... There's also a lot of talent out there. C.J. Stroud's definitely in the mix. I think Bryce Young, uh, Matt Corral, there's a lot of talent. Um, but it's hard to debate against Kenneth Walker with just leading that Spartans team to where they've gone to this season. Mm-hmm. I tell you what, I am blaming the NCAA for that. I know last year wasn't a quarterback, but it's just with their recent my, – my, my mind has an instant word association of Heisman – and I guess MVP in, in the NFL, too. I just have yeah. an instant word association of Heisman and MVP to quarterback. If, if Sam hadn't brought, off, uh, uh, brought up Kenneth Walker, I most certainly would have. Uh, Kenneth Walker 
Uh, I'm still going to talk about him though, because that's my personal favorite. If I had to make a pick right now to date, Kenneth Walker III is my uh, my Heisman winner. He leads the country. He leads all teams in most rushing yards by a single back. The next closest person is over 100 yards behind him. And he uh, is also tied for most touchdowns of any running back. As great as Kenneth Walker have been, is as good as C.J. Stroud has been, neither of them are the, are the current odds-on favorite to win the Heisman Trophy. The current odds-on favorite is that of Bryce Young at Alabama. Uh, Bryce Young's odds are plus 150, but C.J. Stroud and Kenneth Walker are right there behind him at plus 300. So it's still a very close race. It's an uphill, it's always an uphill battle for a running back like Kenneth Walker the third. Yeah. And I, I would like, I know I'm the one who just forgot him like two minutes ago, but I would also put Kenneth Walker as my, as my <laughs> favorite here. Um, like I said, that instant word association and, and kind of slipped him from my mind, but he has, yeah. as you guys all mentioned, absolutely dominant, but I'd like to turn back to the Ohio state Purdue game real quick. I talked about how dominant yeah. that Ohio state offense was. And obviously it was an Ohio state win. But something I like to throw out there, Aiden O'Connell, the quarterback of Purdue, with another 40 completion game, another 340-yard game, or 390-yard game, and another four-touchdown, zero-interception game. Boy, the Purdue offense looks good. I mean, if their defense gave them anything, you know, scoring 31 against an Ohio State team, it certainly deserves props. But C.J. Stroud, Ohio State offense, was just better. If Purdue's defense had done anything, if you look back to Ohio State's only loss of the season, they lost to Oregon 35-28. to if Purdue's offense is able to do what they did, but the defense was able to do much of anything, they could have potentially have been looking at such a win as what Oregon did to Ohio State earlier this year. Purdue has been a nice, uh, a nice storyline this year. That that quarterback's probably not sniffing the Heisman. And I would like to answer my. I posed the question last time: Is it time to label Purdue as a high-powered offense? I'm hitting the button. Yes, <laughs> yes, it yeah. is. That is the a air fact. raid in Purdue. West La- the air raid in West Lafayette is real. However, the air raid in Columbus is better. Mm, it's true. <laughs> the last college football cap or fat that we'll have for this week is Texas. We talked a little bit about them earlier. The Big 12 SEC transfer that's coming up soon. Cap or fact, Texas will finish last in the SEC. I'm going in here and I'm saying this is absolute fact. And here's why. If you look at the, you look at the makeup of the SEC. Texas will probably be slotted into the SEC West because they are on the Western part of the Southeast. That makes sense. Look at, look at the teams in the SEC West. So the teams you're, you are guaranteed to play during the season, Alabama, Ole Miss, Texas A&M, Mississippi state, Arkansas, Auburn, and LSU. The worst of which is LSU, but of course we know it's LSU. They can recruit and build together a generational quality football team like that, as we saw a couple of years ago. So how many of those teams are you saying are worse than Texas and next year will be worse than Texas? You look over to the SEC East, there's no guarantee they draw Vanderbilt, South Carolina, Missouri, some of those seller teams in the SEC East. With that being said, I, I kind of, I lean all the teams in the SEC West over Texas right now. And even if they do draw one of those bad teams, they all still got to play each other then. And one team might come up with a, with a win here that would slot them even with Texas. So I'm, I'm labeling this as fact because that SEC West is as tough as it gets. 
uh, we don't know just yet whether the SEC is going to go with the classic East-West system or whether they're going to go. There's been a proposed pod system that would divide the SEC into four divisions, essentially. The proposed uh, system, uh, or at least the one that the SEC network has made available, would be that the pod with Texas and Oklahoma would be Arkansas, Missouri, Texas, and Oklahoma. And in that pod, they would be happy to have Missouri in there. But how it would work is they would play two games against each of the other pods throughout the, uh, throughout the season. So again, regardless of whether it's pod or you know, classic East-West, there's no guarantee they're playing the Vanderbilts and the South Carolinas. I'm going to go with cap here, though. Even though Texas might not be drawing South Carolina, Vanderbilt, for, for those two teams, they also might not be drawing Texas. For Vanderbilt and South Carolina, they're also going to be playing the rest of the SEC. In this pod situation, for instance, Vanderbilt would be in pod B with Alabama, Auburn, Tennessee, and then themselves. Uh, South Carolina would be slotted with Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, and South Carolina. Texas is the, the Florida team they just beat by 20 last week. This is an off year for Florida. We know they're going to be back. They're going to be better. Is that this is definitely like an Texas. off year. Is that, <laughs> hey, let's let's not compare Florida with the likes of Texas here. But I'm going with I'm going with Cap for those reasons. Yeah, I'm also going Cap. I'm looking more at the West and East division. I didn't know about the pod to be honest, oh, but yeah. in the West uh, division, it'd be A and M. Texas, Oklahoma, LSU, Missouri, Arkansas, Ole Miss, and Mississippi State. With that division, I think Texas is on the lower tier of that. That's what I'm saying. Uh Yeah, But it's a whole conference, and they still have Vandy, South Carolina, and Tennessee. And I just – I'd love it for Texas to be the (laughs) bottom of the SEC because, you know, Texas is always back. Um, But I just find it hard believing – Vandy and South Carolina will do better than Texas with all the talent Texas brings in. So I'm going to yeah. go cap on this one. Yeah. Texas is always going to bring in their recruits and like it's, it's hard to be worse than two and eight. That's Vanderbilt's current record right now. They're Owen six in the sec. I don't think Texas is snagging zero wins in that conference. They're probably going to knock off somebody. It's um, tough to be worse than two and eight. Yeah. Like lose to a two and eight team last week, fifty-seven to fifty-six. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's uh, it, they've shown yeah. they can do it at home. <laughs> they've shown it. Words down, baby. That's all I'll say. The first of a few capper facts we'll have in the NFL. We'll have to go up to Green Bay to the frozen tundra. They've done pretty well that defense in the last few weeks, going up against Russell Wilson, Patrick Mahomes, and Kyler Murray. Does Green Bay have a top five defense in the NFL? As painful as this is for me, I'm going to have to go fact. I just, like you said, uh, just holding the Seahawks to zero, Mahomes to 13, even though they did win. Reminder there. And Mm. the Cardinals, uh, 21. I mean, those are three of the best offensive in the league. So, yeah, I'm going to have to say fact on this one. I'm just going to pick up right where you left off. The Packers did lose in a barn burner for game 13-7 to against the Kansas City Chiefs without Aaron Rodgers. 
most certainly the Packers would have won if they did have their starting quarterback. But going up against Murray, Mahomes, and Wilson, they've held those three quarterbacks to a 56 completion percentage for one touchdown and four interceptions. And mind you, through all of this, Joe Barry, the defensive coordinator for Green Bay, he's been without Jair Alexander and Zendarius Smith, their two best defensive players, their best guy in the secondary, and their best pass rusher. They've been without those two guys for this entire time. And in addition to that, they shut out Russell Wilson for the first time in his career. Russell Wilson had never been shut out, but the Packers did that without those two players and also while losing four defensive starting players throughout the game. Uh, Rashawn Gary and Whitney Marcellus to name two of the more notable contributors that left the game. Uh, both of those players are expected to come back in the, uh, they're, they're expected to be short-term injuries. Uh, none of them have gotten official diagnoses just yet with so many injuries to that defense, but still being able to be so impressive against the best offenses and the, uh, the best offenses in the NFL. Like you said, Sam green Bay has to be a top five defense, even if they don't have it in personnel, they've sure been playing like it. Yeah. You know me, of course, I'm going to throw the cat bomb on this one. <laughs> and, and look, those three games are impressive. When you take a deep dive into it, I think, well, I think the most impressive of the three was that Cardinals game. While I'm not saying it is not impressive, the Cardinals were without DeAndre Hopkins most of the game, which I know you talk about the Packers injuries, of course, but the number one wide receiver certainly changes game, the game a little bit. Mm-hmm. Then you go to the Chiefs. The Chiefs, of course, offense seemed to be clicking last week uh, or se- seemed to, to click again yesterday. But also, let's not forget they were at home against the Giants and scored 20 points against the New York Giants team when they, they scored, what was it, 10 against the Packers? A 13. 13. They scored 13. So they were only a one touchdown better than the New York football Giants defense. Like that, congratulations there. Um, and then, of course, with this Russell Wilson thing, yes, it is impressive, but this is his first game off of an injury to his throwing hand. Mm-hmm. Um, he did not look right. He was missing some open throws. That, I think, should be taken with a grain of salt. With all this being said, the Green Bay Packers defense is good. They are, they are a good defense. He was playing really well. I think we need to pump the brakes a little bit on a top five slot. I think something that needs to be added in addition to, like, with, with what you're saying about Kansas City, yeah, sure, they're definitely, you know, they, they were just a little bit better than the Giants. But the difference between 20 to 13 is a rather major one in the NFL. When we're talking about scoring, it's a lot easier to reach 13 than it is to reach 20. Unfortunately, Jordan Love couldn't do that. But the Green Bay defense was consistently put into terrible situations by not only the Packers offense, but also by the Green Bay special teams. Uh, There's a punt that was muffed by the Packers special teams that Kansas City recovered in the red zone and Green Bay held them to a field goal. Green Bay has consistently, historically struggled, not only just on the defensive side of the football in general, but especially in the red zone. Regardless of whether a top five defense or not right now, I think they are, but regardless of whether they are or aren't, it's been so much better for Aaron Rodgers, for that offense, to rely on a defense, to not have to go out and score 28, 35, 42 points in the game, but to say, you know what? We can score 24. We don't have to score every drive to win anymore. 
Green Bay, that's going to be a team to contend with in the playoffs. There's no, you didn't say anything wrong there. There's nothing I disagree with. It's, it's a good defense. It's certainly the best Aaron Rodgers has had in a long time. But mm-hmm. I also would like to throw out another, another stat with re- regarding Green Bay. Is it's, it's hard. I, I think it would be also hard to label them as a top five when it took them till week, what, like seven to get their first red zone stop? or six to get their first red zone stop. And yes, of course, they've turned that around. But the the start they had with the the inability to limit damage in the red zone, I think, is is certainly a, a big crutch to label this top five. But they continue this path. Of course, no one's going to want to run into Green Bay with with that offense and in, in, in this defense. I think it takes a while for a new system like Joe Barry. This is his first year as defensive coordinator. I think it takes time uh, to, to implement what he wants to do and I think we've seen that throughout the the season. It's taken time for the personnel that the Packers have to be able to learn this system and actually see it work. But now that it's starting to really come into itself, as a Green Bay fan, I'm liking what I'm seeing. Even if I'm not liking what I'm hearing from a certain quarterback, I'm really liking what I'm seeing with the Green Bay Packers defense. We'll stick in the NFC North here with our next capper fact. Minnesota is making the playoffs here. The Vikings will be an NFC representative in the playoffs this year. This is cap. I mean, <laughs> I've gone on and on about this team. Yes, they go out and win win a game against the Chargers, something I didn't think they would do. That's all fine and good, but let's look at the rest of the season. I mean, you got two games against the Packers where you don't think you're going to be favored. You got you to play a game against the Rams, who just added, made the two biggest splashes at the trade deadline slash free agency signing off waivers made the two biggest splashes there and then the rest of your games i mean you got to go to san fran i'd say maybe the vikings are favored there but you saw how they played in close games i mean it's literally a coin toss and if not favored the other way you got to play the lions again where at home you needed a last second 54 yard field goal to win you got to play the steelers who they are a mess right now but of course it's going to be a close game because you are the Minnesota Vikings. You got to go to uh, Soldier Field, a place where you have not played well historically. There are just too many question marks along with three games that I can certainly say the Vikings will be favored. So with all that being said, and the amount of teams within the hunt, I think this is cap. They're going to lose a game. They should win. And that's going to eliminate them here. Yeah, I'm also in agreement. I think it's cap. And I think it's because they can't win the close ones. Um we saw them lose in a controversial way with the Bengals, losing to the Cardinals, losing to the Browns, losing to Cooper Rush, <laughs> losing to the Ravens. No, no, no. Sorry, Sorry <laughs> it's a long way. They're losing to the Cowboys, but you, you know you got to do it. You got to let them know exactly what you lost to. Cooper damn Rush. Okay, it, it, it was not Dak Prescott. It was Cooper freaking Rush who went into Minnesota and beat you at home. Definitely, definitely. Uh, Cooper Rush uh, played a great game that one. Another thing is I think they're talented. Their talent level is playoff worthy. It comes down to what Taylor has said damn near every episode, and that is playing not to lose. And I think that's what's going to keep Minnesota out of these playoffs this year. While we're on that playing not to lose, I would like to to point out that in yesterday's game, although it was forced because the Vikings had the ball with under five minutes left in a one-possession game with the chance to make it a two-possession game, and in doing that, they had two first-down penalties, which put them behind the sticks, and they were forced to open up the playbook. And want to guess what happened? They threw the ball down the field to their playmakers, 
got first downs and ran out the clock. It was an amazing thought? revelation that, that, that <laughs> I, I have never heard, Certainly seen not or more. heard anyone say about <laughs> a team down the stretch with talented wide receivers. Yeah, who would have thought? You know, if, if, you, get, if you get the ball, your best players, uh, some success might happen. Who would have thought? So I'm going to go fact here. I'm changing my pick on the fly. I was totally going to go cap. Here's why I'm going fact. I wanted to, to I wanted to take a look at the other teams that they're going up against to try and get that last spot because one through five in the NFC, we know who's making the playoffs. It's gonna be it's gonna be Cowboys, Cardinals, Rams, Packers, and Buccaneers in no particular order. Those are your division winners or one and two in the NFC West. Those five are solidified. Uh, the the next few teams, the Saints currently have the sixth spot at five and six. I mean uh, five and four. The Panthers currently have the seventh spot at five and five, and then just missing out right now are the Vikings and the Falcons at four and five. The reason why I think the, the, the Vikings do make the playoffs is because if you take a look at some of the teams that like say the Panthers have to play, for instance, their final four games of the season is they play the bills. They play the Buccaneers twice and they play the saints. So someone's losing between the Panthers and the saints. And both of those teams are six, seven right now. And the, the, the saints have a very similar schedule. They, uh, they only play the Buccaneers one more time in the remainder because they already played them once. And then you look at the Vikings. Sure, their schedule's not much better. You know, you, you, play the, you play the Packers twice. They typically play them very closely. I wouldn't be surprised if they snagged one. But you have the 49ers who have been depleted. You play the Lions who just choose to not win football games. You know, they, they tied this week. Congratulations. They didn't lose. But you play the Steelers, who might be uh, who might be without T.J. Watt for the rest of the season. He had an injury. We don't know what it is right now, but it doesn't look good. You play the Bears twice; they're not good. the The Vikings have more winnable games on their schedule than other teams that are in that realm right now. And the Vikings are also the more talented team. I would say the more talented team than the Panthers, potentially the Saints. I think that's close. Certainly the Falcons. Of the remaining teams right there, the Vikings have a great shot of making the playoffs, but it's that what if that we talked about. Can they consistently finish games? They did against the Chargers. Are they going to be able to continually do that moving forward? We don't know. And, and this is how you know, you know I'm, I'm just completely defeated with this Minnesota team is I'm going to look for arguments to say they will not make the playoffs. <laughs> but one more team I'd like to throw in there as, as kind of the, the contenders for that wild card spot that you didn't mention, Keegan, is actually the Eagles. Because they're sitting at four and six, but they still have to yeah. have that buy. I, I mean, I think talent-wise, Minnesota is way more talented than Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the schedule, they have that one game against the Saints, which is going to be interesting to kind of yeah. – one of those are going to lose, of course. Wow, but then they, play, then they play the Giants twice, the Jets once, the football team once. Football team twice, sorry. So the Giants twice, football team twice, the Jets, and then, and then you finish out with the Cowboys. So – Wow. Really, the, the only game where you can see them even possibly losing, I guess maybe maybe the one of the Washington games, but then the Saints and the Cowboys. Again, that's three games that a bad a bad performance down the stretch loses them three games. Whereas mm-hmm. Minnesota, I think a, a a decent performance down the stretch loses them three games. So the Eagles are a team to talk about. When I saw the Eagles at four and six, I didn't even think to look at their schedule. That is a bad schedule. Good schedule. schedule. The quality of teams are bad. Yeah, Yeah. definitely a good schedule that you want to have. 
Uh, I think they probably split with the Giants just because that rivalry game. And I do like the Giants more than other teams do. I mean, other people do. But yeah, that schedule, you could totally sweep the Giants. You could totally sweep Washington. You might drop someone, you know, one or two in there where you you should win. When the Eagles are only one game out of the playoffs, the Vikings are a half game out of the playoffs. It'll be interesting to see who who gets the right to lose to the winner of the NFC West. It'll be interesting to see what happens. We'll move over to Kansas City. After being the Raiders 41 to 14, Kansas City is back and they are making the playoffs. They're winning the Super Bowl. Kansas City is back. Cap or fact? I'm going cap on this one. I just haven't seen the firepower, that offensive brilliance of Andy Reid and those Chiefs this year. I think next uh, Sunday is going to be a huge testament to what this Chiefs team is uh, against the Cowboys next weekend in Kansas City. I think that can be kind of a statement uh, game for the Chiefs. But as of right now, I don't think they're back. I mean, they beat the Raiders pretty handedly yesterday. But I I think it's too early to say they're back concerned. We were debating if they should be hitting the panic button two weeks ago yeah, we, we were calling them dead just a little bit ago they were dead they were gone and now they're leading their division i'm gonna go fact uh kansas city is number one in the afc west right now and after having a dominant performance over the raiders who are currently tied with the chargers they were tied with the chargers last week they're tied with them again after both teams lost they beat the leader of the division and handedly uh, the Chargers were doing really well earlier this season. They something's happened with that organization, with that team. Something's seeming to slide there. They're not doing it. They're not performing as well as they were earlier. It, it seems like their defense might be starting to come along. They're starting to figure out how to force other teams to turn over the ball. Not enough can be said about that Tyreek Hill, Patrick Mahomes connection. If they can keep those connections alive, and Travis Kelsey doing what he does in the middle of the field as a big tight end. I don't have any reason to believe that Kansas City isn't starting to figure things out because we really didn't think that Kansas City was going to stay down bad as they were all season long, right? Like we thought they'd figure it out eventually. Yeah, we, we certainly did. But but I'm gonna I'm gonna pump the brakes here again and call cap because just while any win in the NFL by 27 is a good win, is an impressive win. I just like to look at the Raiders a little bit. I know they were leading the division. But when you actually look at the body of work here, I mean, they're beating the Dolphins by three, losing to the Bears, losing to the Giants in absolute turmoil off the field from, mm-hmm. from the fallout from what happened with, with Gruden. I, it's certainly an encouraging sign, but to label them as back and a contender already, I, I think is cat because the fact of the matter is they might be back and making the playoffs. But if they're going to be able to go Buffalo and go to Buffalo and win that game, go to Tennessee in the playoffs and win that game, I really don't. I really don't think that's going to happen. So I'm calling cap here, and and I I just with the makeup of everything in that defense, it's cap. Something I want to go back to earlier to wrap up this part, Sam. You mentioned the game they're playing this week against Dallas. That for me, I haven't looked at the entirety of the slate for next week. But how can that not be one of the most entertaining games of the week? I'm really looking forward to see this. Uh, Dallas, they had a nice bounce back this past week from uh, the previous loss they had the week before. Kansas City is seemingly trying to 
bounce back in a similar way, trying to get away from their old losing ways from earlier on this season. I'm really looking forward to Sunday because that's going to be really interesting. With this Chiefs-Cowboys game, are the Cowboys going to score 70, 80? Mm-hmm. We're going to see if this Chiefs defense can actually step up and make a stop against one of the NFL's best offenses. I don't think they will, but we'll see. There's going to be a lot of storylines going into that game. So I'm looking forward to seeing how those play out this Sunday. But there's one more storyline that's been going on throughout the entirety of the season. It's become first and foremost in a lot of people's minds. A lot of fans of the NFL are wondering right now, does the NFL hate their fans? Does the NFL care what the fans think about the product they're putting on the field with the various taunting issues, with games ending in ties when fans have been calling for overtime to be changed for a long time? What's going on here in the NFL? I tell you what, what's going on in the NFL is that then not only do they hate their fans, they hate it when their fans have fun and <laughs> they hate it when their players have fun. The only one who can have fun is the NFL by collecting money at every chance it can via fines and, and changing rules to allow for more opportunities to find, thus increasing their revenue. It is absolutely absurd how egotistical, how blatantly elitist the NFL feels right now. The rules that they refuse to change, even though fans have voiced their opinion and we've seen the rule change at work in other leagues and have liked the product, the NFL will never, ever admit that anybody else's rules or anybody else's product is better than theirs. And any sort of implementation of other rules would would be an admission that someone else is better than us at doing something, which the NFL will not admit. So of course they hate fun. They hate it when their fans have fun and they just absolutely need to have controversy. They absolutely need to find a way to end football games in the worst way possible in a coin flip where if you score a touchdown, it's over, but who gets the ball is the luck of a coin flip is absurd. This is absolutely ridiculous. The NFL hates fun and hates their fans. Yeah, I'm also going fact on this one. Their nickname is literally the No Fun League. It's mm-hmm. getting, it's always been bad, let's be honest here, but it has been so much worse with the new new taunting rules. I mean, we saw what happened to the Bears player last week, just absurd. And then, like Tanner said, the stupid overtime rules. It literally comes down to a coin toss. They need to change that. And they won't because the NFL is perfect. Everyone knows this. But yeah, it's a huge fact for this one. I'm not sure we ever broke it down here on Crunch Time. The the Cassius Marsh, that's the player on the Bears uh, who was not only called for taunting, but was fined by the NFL. What happened was there was a play. It was third and long. Uh, the Bears were down three at the time and they got a sack. It, it was Cassius Marsh that got the sack. He was previously a player on the Steelers practice squad. He was right around midfield. He was standing near the hashes and he turns over to the Pittsburgh Steelers sideline and just looks in that direction. The NFL, the the guy who threw the flag was behind him. The, The referee was behind the player. He doesn't know if Cassius Marsh is looking directly at the sideline. He doesn't know if he was looking at his feet, if he was looking up at the stands, looking at the, he doesn't know what he's doing. And not only that, but as Cassius Marsh is running back to go to his sideline, the ref 
hip checks him as he has his hand on his flag. And so not only did all of this happen on the field, but the NFL doubled down on it and fined Cassius Mars $6,000 for unsportsmanlike conduct. The NFL released a video explaining why he was flagged, talking about how he was clearly posturing in such a way, you know, that where he was taunting the other team. Posturing? We are calling flags and fining people thousands of dollars for posturing? Do we, do we want people to turn on the TV? Oh man, I really, I can't wait to see how this referee is going to botch this game. How is the referee going to insert himself into this play to ruin the product on the field? Throwing the flag for posturing while J.J. Watt earlier in the game blew a kiss to the Bears' sideline and got nothing. And this is where I have so much trouble is where are these taunting rules come from? Players want to have fun. Players like it when they can show a little emotion. Opposing players like it when they can get some extra motivation from someone else showing emotion. Fans like it, adding to storylines, adding to the emotional appeal of the game. Everybody is in agreement with this. If anything, it would increase viewership when you have two teams who have historically bad blood facing off in the playoffs. When there was a, there was a skirmish earlier in the year, and they're playing again in a big game. What is the problem here? Who on earth is pushing this narrative that it's bad for the game? I have yet to see one singular fan or one singular player come out and say that they like this. So what is the rationale? I wish I knew. I, I don't really... think there is any rationale. Honestly. Is it just trying to find more opportunities to find? Because that is my best guess right now. If something happens, in which I almost certainly think that it will. So when something happens, rather, in the NFL playoffs, maybe even the Super Bowl, when a flag is called for, ta- for, is called for taunting when it shouldn't be, NFL fans everywhere are going to erupt because my dad, he's a Steelers fan. He was watching the entirety of the game. Uh, funny enough, my dad's dad, my grandpa, is a Bears fan. So they were texting each other back and forth throughout the game, in which I'm proud of my grandpa on knowing how to text. But <laughs> he, they're talking back and forth. And even my dad, a Steelers fan of all people, is like, how, what, what, where are, how are these calls being made against the Bears? What, it doesn't make any sense. It baffles me. And I don't understand why the NFL hates their fans. And it's just such a weird juxtaposition right after they relax sportsmanlike conduct rules for celebrating touchdowns and turnovers and you can have the entire team run down and take their picture flexing their arms in front of the football but you can't have someone make some sort of gesture after a big play it just doesn't make any sense and it's not hurting anybody and it's just because some rich owner thinks this changing the product is absolutely absurd I, I, I don't get it and it honestly might be harder to understand than the Turnbow family team associations because everybody seems to be all over the place in your oh, family. Oh, totally. It, it but, doesn't make sense to me, man. And I'm I'm in that family. <laughs> but but divesting from that a little bit, it, it's so difficult to understand where it's coming from. It, and it's it's just one thing if the rules, the rule changes are rooted in, in player safety because, you know, that at least has a rationale. And I understand like some of the poor roughing the passer calls, well, I think they're poor. 
I think the 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 emphasis on that is good for the game in the long term, but the taunting is just something that that no fan can wrap their head around right now. I'm trying to think uh, in my family all of the team affiliations. There's Packers, Chargers, Giants, Steelers, Bears, Cowboys. Um, Absurd. Just the, uh, even that enough. Yeah, I think that's it. No, New Saints. York, Los Angeles, New, or- New York, Los Angeles, <laughs> New Orleans, Dallas, Green Bay, but Pittsburgh. It might be There's a Ravens fan. There's oh, a Ravens it might guy. be easier to just name yeah, teams. Yeah, but teams don't. <laughs> yeah, teams. Uh, yeah, no one likes the Lions because they don't have any fans. Uh, they don't have yeah. any fans. Right. But speaking of the Lions, I don't like. We we briefly touched upon this a few different times, and Tanner, you talked about it as well. The uh, the Lions Steelers game ended in a tie, and of all games that deserved to end in a tie, that was definitely one of them. Uh, the Packers and Cardinals uh, game earlier, not Cardinals, Packers and Bengals game earlier this year seemingly deserved to end in a tie. It just doesn't make sense when there's a season as short as the NFL uh, with 17 games. Of all of the professional leagues to allow ties to happen, when there's only 17 games in the season, ties are the most notable in this particular instance. Who knows how this, like whether the Steelers will be of benefit or of detriment because their team that is in the playoff hunt in the AFC. Uh, no one certainly cares about what the Lions are doing. They're seemingly destined for the number one overall pick this year. Yeah, and yeah. and I think one of, one of the common arguments that I'm seeing, especially with this Lions-Steelers game, is that it was such bad football that neither deserved to win. And I get that. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it draws great parallels to the Penn State-Illinois game yeah. that went into nine overtimes or whatever when you have just an ugly, ugly football game where one team is a heavy underdog or, or an underdog being the, the, the winless Lions. And that sort of that, – that game was so much fun to watch how bad of football it was and how it just felt like all you need to do is score one two-point conversion and you win the game, and neither team could do it. I was on the edge of my seat. No matter how low quality the football was, it was great TV, and that is a huge opportunity that's just missed from these stupid, stupid overtime rules. Anything else we want to make known before we wrap up the episode? NFL sucks. <laughs> and trend- Last week we got hashtag fire Keegan trending. Now let's get hashtag NFL sucks tweeting or tweeting yeah. trending. The only thing that we really have as hope for the NFL, because it's so weird how, you know, people hate the product so much in different ways, but NFL is king in terms of ratings. There's, there's not a, there's not a sport that gets more ratings than the national football league. Uh, the, the only hope that's out there for the NFL is that Roger Goodell's contract currently expires in March of 2024. So it's three years from now. It's, it's a little while. Um, but uh, Roger Goodell, there, there are reports that have come out that that will be his retirement date. So the only hope that we have is that the incoming, the, the successor to Roger Goodell will be able to do better for the game than that of, than what he has done. There have been some good things like making the game safer for, you know, for certain players, that's something that you always want to see. But there, there have been so much controversy and ineptitude that he has also brought to the table, and it's been really frustrating. Last thing I have to say about this is, I mean, look at it from the NFL perspective. They're they're gaining more fines. They're they're yeah. controlling the game more than ever, and 
they're losing very little ratings if at all so mm-hmm. that, that that's where the problem lies is is the the monopoly hold over over sports entertainment in the fall from the nfl is is seems to to stall any major change from happening i don't think there's anything that's going to change that it seems mm-hmm. like the nfl is always going to be king in sports media and in sports entertainment in general but that wraps it up for episode 18 make sure to throw us a follow on twitter tiktok and snapchat at crunch time underscore pod the clock has now run out on this episode but we'll see you in the next one on crunch time